Association of Nurse Practitioners. I'm the host of today's special edition episode, Nurse Practitioner and Education Specialist Patty Scalzo, and this is NP Pulse, the voice of the nurse practitioner. Welcome to NP Pulse, AANP's monthly podcast, bringing you unique nurse practitioner voices and expertise on issues that matter to NPs and our patients. As always, be sure to subscribe to this podcast, share with your colleagues, and check back each month for new conversations with nurse practitioners and healthcare leaders from across the nation. Did you know that the CDC estimates that one in three Americans will develop shingles in their lifetime? About two-thirds of cases occur in people over 50 years of age. Despite the evidence for the benefit associated with the shingles vaccine, vaccination rates remain suboptimal, and the incidence of shingles continues to rise every year. Nurse practitioners are well-positioned to improve shingles vaccination rates. On today's podcast, we are joined by nurse practitioners Audrey Stevenson and Ruth Carrico to discuss shingles vaccination. Dr. Stevenson, who holds Master's of Public Health and Master of Nursing degrees, received her doctorate in public health from the University of Utah. She has worked in public health for the past 34 years and is the former Division Director of Family Health and Clinical Services of the Salt Lake County Health Department in Salt Lake City, Utah. She's currently working in clinical research for Synexis and teaching graduate FNP and MPH students at two universities. Dr. Carrico is the Executive Director of the Infectious Diseases Institute for Norton Healthcare, a large health system headquartered in Louisville, Kentucky. She's also a professor and family nurse practitioner, gratis faculty with the University of Louisville School of Medicine, Division of Infectious Diseases. Dr. Carrico has received training specific for healthcare epidemiology at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in conjunction with the Rollins School of Public Health at Emory University in Atlanta and the Society for Healthcare Epidemiology of America. Audrey and Ruth will be joined by a very special guest today, Elizabeth Cohen, who has personally experienced shingles and its devastating effects. It is my pleasure to welcome Ruth Audrey and Elizabeth. I'm delighted to have this opportunity today to speak about shingles as a disease and also vaccine. My name is Dr. Ruth Caraco. We know that about one in three Americans will develop herpes zoster or shingles sometime in their lifetime. And this equates to about a million cases every year in the United States. Anyone ever exposed to varicella zoster is at risk, although we consider those born before 1980 as immune to varicella. We know that there is greater risk uh, among those who are immunocompromised, but a lower risk in black individuals, about 50% lower than white individuals. So we know that there are certainly some differences in responses to this infection. I'm delighted to also have with me today, Dr. Elizabeth Cohen, the Professor of Ophthalmology and Vice Chair for Faculty Affairs in the Department of Ophthalmology 
and chair of the Zoster Eye Disease Study at the NYU Grossman School of Medicine. Elizabeth, it's great to be with you today. Could I pass this on to you to talk with us a bit about the burden of zoster infection and some of your personal experiences in dealing with this? So I think you realize that shingles is a very common disease, but it's also a very serious disease that is potentially life-threatening and certain for many people life-altering. The most common complication is post-herpetic neuralgia, which is a chronic pain syndrome. It's defined as pain that interferes with your normal activities occurring three or more months after the onset of the disease. So the severe acute pain that people may have for four to six weeks is not considered post-herpetic neuralgia. It doesn't count as post-herpetic neuralgia until you've been in pain at least three months. About 20% of persons with shingles end up with post-herpetic neuralgia, and the risk is primarily in people who are age 65 and older at the time they get shingles. Usually in the younger shingles patients, the pain will resolve after four to six weeks, but not always, but usually. This pain really can ruin the quality of life of older persons forever. So they can say that didn't kill them, but it made their life poor for the remainder of their life. It can go on forever. It is a, a terrible pain that we do not have good treatments for. The treatments that exist, there are many, but they have a number of side effects. They're sedating, and they are simply not very effective. So if we want to prevent post-herpetic neuralgia, the only way we have to do it is preventing the disease. Proper treatment of shingles with the 7 to 10 day course of relatively high dose oral antivirals does not prevent post-herpetic neuralgia. We need to prevent shingles if we want to prevent this terrible, debilitating chronic pain syndrome that we have pain in the area where the shingles existed, a unilateral location where the rash was ends up with chronic pain. Hospitalizations are quite uncommon for shingles, but they can occur more in immunocompromised persons and older persons, but they can occur also in young and healthy persons. When we think of the serious complications, post-herpetic neuralgia is more common in older people, but neurologic complications are not. So neurologic complications such as stroke or transverse myelitis, eye involvement, ear involvement, they all occur as often in younger patients as in older patients. So young people cannot think that this is a benign condition. Again, uh, mortality is uncommon in shingles, but shingles can be associated with fatal stroke that usually occurs about four to eight weeks after the episode. And the fatal strokes are more common after zoster near the eye because the virus spreads from the nerves to the eye to the vessels nearby and can cause devastating stroke. And I remember one time sitting at a dinner table and um, someone asked me what I was interested in. And I said, I do a lot of research related to shingles. And she said, oh, my mother-in-law died of a stroke from that. 
And I remember taking care of a patient um, when I was in practice who had very severe shingles, needed intravenous treatment because of orbital involvement, and his doctor called to tell me six weeks later that he had had a massive stroke and died. So these can be terrible strokes. They're not always terrible strokes. So for example, and I think sometimes the association with shingles is missed, and therefore the appropriate IV treatment is not given. For example, I gave a talk to businessmen about and women about shingles, and someone came up to me afterwards and said that after their father had shingles, for the rest of his life, he suffered from small mini-strokes. And I'm sure these mini-strokes were related to shingles and could have been prevented if he had gotten the appropriate intravenous treatment. You have to realize also the burden is severe. For example, a friend of mine who was in her 50s when she got shingles ended up with postherpetic neuralgia, which you're not supposed to have when you're in your 50s. And she call, I spoke to her a couple days after she started getting treatment for shingles and, she, and the shingles was located in her chest. She said, well, I'm sure this isn't related, but my legs are weak and numb. And I'm saying to her, this is related. This is an emergency. And she was hospitalized that evening for intravenous treatment. And she recovered a normal function in her legs. But five years later, she developed progressive weakness and pain in her leg. And all other causes were ruled out. And it is thought that what happened is she initially had a good amount of reserve in her spinal cord and then with so that she recovered. But with aging over a number of years, she had less reserve and therefore has this chronic debilitating problem related to transverse myelitis from her acute episode. We see this also in polio patients who recover and then as they're older have problems with uh, weakness in their legs. So you have to accept that this is a serious disease. Now for myself, as an ophthalmologist, a cornea specialist, I'm most focused on the corneal complications, the eye complications of zoster, and they can result in chronic and recurrent eye disease and permanent loss of vision. This was an area that always interested me. I was involved in landmark research related to herpes simplex eye disease, and herpes zoster is caused by a different but related herpes virus, the varicella zoster virus. So I had a long time um, expertise in this area. And in my 50s, one day I thought my eye hurt because I maybe got suntan lotion in it, and then the next day I ran my fingers through my hair and noticed blisters along the hairline of my forehead. And I was sitting in a meeting with another cornea doctor and she said, you have shingles. And within one hour, I was put on the appropriate high dose oral antiviral treatment. And nonetheless, over a period of a year, I developed chronic and recurrent eye disease to the point of losing vision in one eye. So I had to give up being a practicing cornea doctor and was left with a lot of time to turn my attention toward research related to shingles. So in the best of care does not prevent serious complications. Another thing that's sometimes overlooked is that when the nerve to your ear and this from this and the side of your face is affected, you can end up with unilateral permanent hearing loss known as Ramsey-Hunt syndrome. So shingles has a lot of serious complications, and I think that it can cause vascular disease 
related to your heart and your legs also, although that's less well established, but there's some quite convincing evidence in some population-based studies. So it's not just a plainful, unpleasant rash. It's something that can really change your life and um, end your life. So it's very much worth preventing. So let's turn now to the current CDC recommendations regarding the recombinant zoster vaccine or Shingrix. Thanks, Elizabeth, for sharing that story. And I'd love to talk about the current CDC recommendations for shingles vaccine. We know that, that in 2018, the ACIP then provided us with some recommendations regarding how to address the use of the shing shingles vaccine, the recombinant zoster vaccine in the immunocompetent adults aged 50 and older. The recommendations then indicated that those individuals should receive two doses of Shingrix separated by two to six months. And it didn't matter if the individuals um, have had the prior Zoster vaccine, Zostavax, or shingles disease itself. Uh, importantly, it was not necessary uh, as we reviewed these guidelines to screen either verbally or by laboratory serology for evidence of prior varicella. Uh, individuals, however, should not be vaccinated if they have a history of severe allergic reaction to any components of the vaccine or are experiencing an acute episode of shingles that symptoms should resolve before administering Shingrix. Again, remember, Shingrix is not a treatment for either shingles or this post-herpetic neuralgia. Uh, individuals should not be vaccinated also if they have moderate or severe illness with or without fever. Now in 2021, and these, uh, these updated uh, recommendations were published then the next year in 2022, uh, addressed the, the issue that many of us had questions about, and that is, well, what about the immunocompromised adult? And what about immunocompromised adults that are under the age of 50? So we have then updated recommendations from the ACIP that address the immunocompromised adult age 19 and older. Now in July, the, the indication for the vaccine was expanded to 18 years of age and older, but the ACIP recommendations that were released in October of 21 recommended uh, the, the inclusion of immunocompromised adults 19 years of age and older, and this really helped keep in line with the adult immunization schedule. So in this update, two doses of Shingrix uh, were provided regardless of history of shingles or previous receipt of Zostavax. Again, doses typically separated by two to six months, but if the individual receiving the vaccine were expected to become immunodeficient or immunosuppressed and would benefit from completing the series in a shorter interval, then the doses may be administered one to two months apart with a minimum of four weeks spacing between those two doses. Now, considerations on timing should be focused on uh, the approach to aim when the immune system will be the most robust. This means we have to look at disease severity and duration, the patient's clinical stability, complications and comorbidities, and then any additional or anticipated immunosuppressing treatment. Now, one important point in this update that involved the immunocompromised adult involves the prior varicella exposure. Remember, previously in the immunocompetent adults age 50 and older, uh, prior varicella exposure was not necessary, so we didn't need to screen 
for that. However, for the immunocompromised, documentation of history of varicella exposure is required before vaccination. This means we either have to have documentation of two doses of varicella vaccine or laboratory evidence of immunity or laboratory confirmation of disease or diagnosis or verification of a history of varicella or herpes zoster by a healthcare provider. No documentation history of varicella, varicella vaccine, or shingles also must be present. Varicella vaccine is a live virus vaccine, so you always want to have any type of discussion that shared clinical decision-making with patients regarding risk um, benefit. So there are some specific immunocompromised conditions, specifically th those that have undergone or who are anticipated to undergo hematopoietic uh, cell transplant. Uh, this can be either those that receive an autologous, the, that means that uh, there is an immunologic match uh, type of transplant or allogeneic. So those that receive, received an autologous uh, transplant, cell transplant, should receive the vaccine three to 12 months after that transplant. Those that had a, an incompatible uh, transplant or the allogeneic uh, vaccination should occur six to 12 months after transplant and then vaccinate before discontinuing antiviral therapy. When those patients that had solid organ transplants, uh, when possible, vaccinate before the transplant. Uh, then six to 12 months after the transplant, if they were not vaccinated previously. Uh, and that would be at the time that there is a little bit more confidence in the stability of that graft function. Individuals who have cancer, uh, the goal is to vaccinate before they reach an immunosuppressed state. If that is impossible, then try to administer the vaccine once the immune system is no longer acutely suppressed or when the immune system is likely to be the most robust. Now, those that are, are receiving anti-B cell therapies, such as those for autoimmune diseases, administer about four weeks prior to the next therapy. Individuals with, with HIV disease, we know that antiretroviral therapy may actually improve immune response to the Sheringworks vaccine. So you can vaccinate even if the CD4 count is low or if the patient has advanced HIV disease. Those that have autoimmune and inflammatory conditions Vaccinate prior to the initiation of immunosuppressive medications. If before is not possible, then administer with when immunosuppression is anticipated to be um, at its lowest. Again, the anti-B cell therapies administer about four weeks prior to the next therapy. Now, there's some general guideline notes that are applicable to all vaccine recipients. First, wait a minimum of eight weeks after Zostavax or varicella vaccine to give Shingrix. Uh, in pregnancy, consider delaying vaccination until after pregnancy. And then there are no recommendations for pregnancy testing, however, prior to administration of the vaccine. And at present, there is no known risk to individuals who are breastfeeding or to the infants. Concerning booster doses, there is no recommendation for a booster dose of Shingrix at this time. And remember, do not start this, uh, restart this series if the second dose is given later than six months. Now, some additional information. I know I mentioned uh, Zostavax and waiting a minimum of eight weeks after Zostavax or varicella vaccination. But please remember that in November of 2020, Zostavax was discontinued. So it is likely not even available in your office or in other vaccinating sites. 
Remember that you can administer Shingrix alongside other vaccines, including COVID-19. Now, whenever we have a vaccine, we always have to stop and think a little bit about vaccine storage and handling. And this is important because as you open up the box for Shingrix vaccine, you'll see that there are two vials uh, that are provided. One is actually the antigen and the other is the adjuvant. It's important that those be reconstituted, those two be mixed before administration. Make sure that you store the vaccine in the refrigerator. Do not freeze it. And then after you have reconstituted, make sure that you administer it, or if you had some interruption and you have to store it, put it back in the refrigerator, but make sure that it is used within six hours. Always keep an eye on the manufacturing date. Uh, generally, uh, the shelf life is gonna be 36 from the manufacture date if you keep it in the refrigerator. And then remember, the administration dose is 0.5 milliliters. So as oftentimes you can, you can reconstitute a medication and you'll have just a bit more than you need, only administer that 0.5 mLs or that half cc. Now with this vaccine, uh, the, the question and the, I guess, cause for celebration really has been uh, the improved uh, response to vaccines when we compare it to what we're, we're seeing with the prior uh, shingles vaccine, Zostavax. So when looking at some of these outcomes, when we are looking at the immunocompetent in adult, we're seeing um, efficacy rates of more than 96% in those 50 to 59, more than 97% in those 60 to 69. And then interestingly, those that are 70 to 79 91% and those that are more than 80, also 91%. So the efficacy has been quite remarkable. When we look at the immunocompromised adult, uh, going back to those that had autologous hematopoietic uh, cell transplant, we're looking at the uh, efficacy of about 68%. But I think a, a, a great benefit is the reduction of post-herpetic neuralgia was 89%, and the prevention of shingles-related hospitalizations, 85%. Among individuals who had hematological malignancies, the efficacy was more than 87%, and those that had potential immune-mediated disease, greater than 90%. So those results, I think, have been, uh, have been outstanding. Those that had prior Zostavax, we always have a question about what, what is the immunization history of our patient and how does that impact uh, subsequent vaccines? Well, if for some reason uh, Zostavax is still uh, in an office and is given, wait eight weeks after a Zostavax before giving Shingrix. Now, when we look at Zostavax efficacy, one of the reasons that the ACIP has made the transition from Zostavax to Shingrix is that the Zostavax efficacy, looking at individuals three years post-vaccination, in those 70 to 79, we had an efficacy of about 41%. In those 80 and older, it was 18%. However, Shingrix efficacy seven years post-vaccination among those 70 years old and greater is more than 84%. Now with any vaccine, we always look at how does our patient feel and what do we need to include in our patient education post-vaccination? Well, we know that we have grade three reactions are, are quite common and we expect that and we see that with adjuvanted vaccines. You'll have injection site symptoms, including pain, redness and swelling, 
myalgias, fatigue, headache, even shivering, fever, and some GI illness. In March 2021, uh, a Guillain-Barre warning was added uh, that 42 days following vaccination, it, there were three to six excess cases per million. No increased risk, however, was found following the second dose. And remember, as you talk with patients after their first dose, remind them that the side effects after dose one do not correlate with side effects they may experience from subsequent doses. So after that review a bit about uh, the, the vaccine information, I'd like to transition this to uh, Dr. Stevenson. Audrey? Thank you, Ruth and Elizabeth. My name is Dr. Audrey Stevenson. I'm a family nurse practitioner as well. So I wanna start off by talking about some of the barriers to vaccinations. When we look at vaccination rates for those individuals 60 and older uh, that have ever been vaccinated for shingles, we see that in 2008, there were 6.7% that had ever been vaccinated for shingles. When we contrast that with uh, 10 years later in 2018, we see that the numbers had increased uh, to 34.5%, which is an improvement, but it still only represents one out of three individuals. Now, there are a number of health disparities with vaccinations. We see lower vaccination rates among minority populations and those of low socioeconomic status. We note also that Blacks and Hispanic adults are 50% less likely, less likely to vaccinate. And within the U.S. region, we also see differences in vaccination rates. While the U.S. average is 34.5%, we see that we have a low of 26.3% in the east-south-central region of the country, and the highest level of 42.8% is in the west-north central uh, region of the country. When we look at the percentage of individuals vaccinated among subpopulations, we note that there is a slightly higher incidence of vaccination among females at 35.4% versus males at 33.5%. Likewise, when we look at ethnic groups, we see that non-Hispanic whites have the highest vaccination rate of 38.8%, followed by Hispanics at 19.5% and non-Hispanic Blacks at 18.8%, which is substantially less than what we see with the non-Hispanic Whites. We also see differences in socioeconomic status. So those individuals that identify as not poor are at 38.4% vaccination rates, where the near poor are down to 25.9% and the individuals that identify as poor are 20.4%. We also see an impact of education level on vaccination rates. Those who have more than a high school diploma or GED have the highest vaccination rate of 39.9%, followed by those with high school diploma or GED at 29.4%, and those who have less than a high school diploma are 21.2%. So we can see big differences among these subpopulations. There are a number of patient, provider, and system barriers that we see. One of the primary barriers is cost, which is a big barrier for both patients and providers if they have no insurance. Also, we have fears of side effects, which is a big barrier for many patients. In a 2022 survey study of general internists and family physicians, they found that 42% of those providers did not stock Shingrix, but referred elsewhere 
primarily to pharmacies. However, 64% noted that the pharmacist never was notified of the vaccination. And also that the reasons for not stocking were the upfront costs, inadequate reimbursement, and so on. Another 67% reported a limited supply of Shingrix. So if individuals were wanting the vaccine, they may not have it available to them. And then 28% of the providers reported that the patients declined the vaccination about 25% of the time, even if it was recommended. There are a number of strategies that we can implement as providers. I know that Ruth and I have discussed these in the past. And when we look at CDC standard for adult immunization practices, we find that all providers should, one, incorporate immunization needs assessments into every clinical encounter. This means every encounter with your patient is a vaccine visit where you reviewed the record and you ensure that the patient has received all of the needed vaccines. You also need to have that strong recommendation for those needed vaccines. We need as providers to either administer the vaccines or refer our patients to a provider who can provide that immunization. But keep in mind, if you don't vaccinate when you have the opportunity, the patient may be a may be a missed opportunity and fail to follow up with another provider or a pharmacy. You need to also stay up to date on vaccine recommendations and educate patients on those vaccine recommendations. Implement systems to incorporate vaccine assessment into the routine clinical care, so every visit a vaccine visit, and understand how to access immunization information systems in your area. These systems are very important in keeping records that are meaningful for both providers and patients so that they know which vaccines they have received and which ones they are still missing. Also, interventions to improve vaccine uptake. The Task Force on Community Preventive Services indicated increased community demand for vaccines. And we can do this through a number of, of different strategies. One is using client reminder systems also using community-based interventions that are implemented in combination, and then providing patient or family incentives for vaccines. Also enhancing access to vaccination services, reducing out-of-pocket costs to the individuals, using home visits, outreach, and other case management um, opportunities to target those that are particularly hard to reach um, within the population, and also expanding access to healthcare settings. In focusing on providers, provider reminder recall systems are especially important. Providing assessment and feedback, using standing orders so that individuals don't have to have an appointment to receive their vaccines. Also implementing healthcare system-based interventions that are integrated in combination. And finally, immunization information groups. Ruth and I have each used in our practice a number of different communication techniques and strategies. And I wanna discuss one that is called the ASPIRE method for encouraging vaccine. In this acronym, the A stands for the word assume. So you want to assume people want to get vaccinated and be prepared for any questions that they may have about vaccines. The S is to share key facts and sources of information to counter misinformation because there is so much misinformation out there. The P is to present strong recommendations and stories about vaccination experiences, including those of our own with our own families. 
I is to initiate discussion or address questions about side effects proactively and share credible sources of information. R is to respond to questions and to actively listen. The listening is probably one of the most important parts of, of our communication with our patients. And finally, the E stands for empathize and understand any concerns that they may be expressing. Other strategies for communicating with our patients about vaccine include the presumptive recommendations. There have been a number of studies that have shown that using a presumptive statement that your patient is due for whatever vaccines you are recommending is going to be compelling in their decision to be vaccinated. Establish that receiving recommended vaccines is the standard choice for most patients. Disconfirmation bias, when presented with evidence about a belief, people are more easily able to accept evidence that supports the existing belief and are critical of evidence that discredits the belief. So rather than discrediting incorrect elements of existing beliefs, try providing new information to replace those elements and pivot that conversation to focus on the diseases that the vaccine prevents. In motivational interviewing, if a patient is hesitant, use open-ended questions, and that can help to determine the core objections or concerns that the patient may have. Ask permission to share information. Keep the tone conversational rather than lecturing about a vaccine's facts. We want to use uh, storytelling. The use of personal stories and anecdotes are powerful communication tools. Also, clarifying vaccine myths. We know that there are so many that are out there. If a patient's concern is a vaccine-related myth, use care when clarifying the truth. In many instances, a lot of time is spent talking about a myth and can paradoxically strengthen it in the patient's mind. So identify the myth as a myth and state that it is false and focus on the facts. And then state the core facts simply. If the truth seems more complicated, it may be easier to continue accepting simple information in the myth for many patients. It's also important for the nurse practitioner to keep up with vaccine research and trials. There are a number of emerging vaccine technologies. The technologies that occurred during the COVID-19 vaccine development have been utilized in many of the future vaccines, including shingles vaccine development. All of the other vaccines that I'm going to mention are either in the early development stages or are occurring outside of the United States. There are many different types of vaccine uh, characteristics. Some are live attenuated, some are using adjuvanted, uh, recombinant varicella. We also have plasmid containing, recombinant, and then messenger RNA, which we became familiar with during COVID-19. And as I mentioned before, each of these are in either early development stages or are occurring outside of the United States. So we currently still only have the one vaccine here in the U.S. Elizabeth, since you are the chair of the Zoster Eye Disease Study, will you please share a little bit about that with us? The Zoster Eye Disease Study has the aim to determine whether prolonged low-dose antiviral treatment of people with Zoster in their eye can reduce chronic and or uh, recurrent eye disease and or post-herpetic neuralgia. When I had Zoster back in uh, 2010, I had the idea that maybe we should try treating Zoster the way we treat herpes simplex eye disease 
on the basis of the herpetic eye disease study, which showed that uh, suppressive antiviral treatment significantly reduced recurrent eye disease during one year of the antiviral treatment. We used to think that many of the complications of zoster were related to inflammation, but we've learned in recent years with PCR testing availability that actually a number of the complications of zoster relate to chronic or recurrent active infection with the varicella zoster virus. So this is a second rationale for the concept that perhaps prolonged low-dose um, antiviral treatment would be effective in uh, preventing complications and improving outcomes. So I had this idea uh, to do the study in 2010, and uh, at that point I had to had given up my practice because I couldn't see well enough to do it, and I was not in a setting with a lot of patients and didn't think I would be the one to lead it, and I tried to give it off to a friend of mine, and he did a survey and let it drop there. Then after Hurricane Sandy uh, flooded NYU Langone Health, where I was for, for two months, I had a lot of time to start working on writing a grant to be submitted to the National Eye Institute of the National Institutes of Health. And I got a lot of support for this project with 60 participating clinical centers interesting in uh, participating in the first application that was submitted in 2013 to the NEI. Unfortunately, it took three ties to get funded, and along the way, a lot of doctors started thinking that this treatment worked without any good evidence that it does. Nonetheless, in uh, 2016, the NEI funded this study, and we started enrolling study participants in 2017. As of um, now, we have almost 500 study participants. We have centers across the United States, across Canada, and in New Zealand. And we are working to find the answer to this very important question, whether one year of low-dose um, valcyclovir compared to double-mask placebo will reduce eye complications and or post-herpetic neuralgia. And we're also adding some endpoints to evaluate the impact of recombinant zoster vaccine, Shingrix, in people who already have herpes zoster in the eye as well as the impact of COVID-19 infection and vaccinations. So that's where we stand. But we are eager for more enrollment. You know, in participation in clinical trials is the right thing to do to develop evidence-based, high-quality care. Expert opinion that something works doesn't make it so. Preferred practice patterns depend on good quality data. So it's been a challenge to do enrollment partly from the COVID-19 pandemic, um, but also because many of our investigators think the uh, treatment works. Potential study participants who've already been given suppressive antiviral treatment don't really want to come off it and be randomized to placebo or antiviral treatment, even though in our protocol, if someone gets worsening disease or the doctor thinks they need antiviral treatment, they can get it. But if you're interested in more information, please contact us at the Coordinating Center at NYU Langone, and we can give you information about how you can participate. And I thank you for the opportunity to speak. Well, thank you so much, Audrey, Ruth, and Elizabeth. It's been an absolute pleasure listening to you and gaining your perspective and insights on this extremely important topic.
To our listeners, I hope you found this episode educational and can apply some of what was discussed to your practice. Join your National Professional Association and add your voice to over 120,000 of your NP colleagues nationwide. I urge you to become an AANP member today. Membership gives you access to so many benefits, including tools and resources for your practice and the AANP CE Center, which offers a comprehensive library of CE activities for NPs of all specialties and experience levels. Exclusive discounts and many free activities are yours as an AANP member to help you complete state licensure requirements and earn the credits needed for recertification. Don't forget that you can learn more about shingles and earn continuing education by visiting aanp.org slash cecenter. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast, share with your colleagues, and check back each month for new episodes. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.